All right, our first reader today is uh, co-host of the House of Mystery, and uh, he's got a lot of books, and a lot of people know him. So, uh, Mr. John Copenhaver, and he's reading from Hall of Mirrors. So, thank you for being here, John. Thank you, Al. I am looking forward to it. So, this doesn't really require much setup, since it's the first chapter of Hall of Mirrors. So, I'm going to jump right in. It's May 1st, 1954. And the perspective I'm reading from is Lionel. I'm aware of the clear dust sky beyond the smoke. I'm aware of cherry blossoms hanging in the breeze weeks past their peak. I'm aware of our building Spanish colonial revival facade, its tiers and modeled ledges and balconies sweeping upward. It's demonic grotesque perched on the cornice looming in vain, having failed to ward off evil spirits. Firefighters rush past me, Wearing wide-brimmed helmets, gas masks with trunk-like noses, bulky coats marred with the residue of past fires, and tall boots like fishermen's waders. They grip fire extinguishers and haul limp extra hoses over their shoulders. The polished nozzles glint in the light from the building's lobby entrance. They call out commands and move with extraordinary purpose, giving some order to the chaos. A hook and ladder truck, its wheel up over the curb and Brushing a fledgling redbud tree buzzes with commotion. The long, expandable ladder shifts and begins to angle up. The clean-faced firefighter at its helm is so intent on the job that he briefly and bizarrely charms me. Not far behind me, distraught neighbors and nosy, babbling pedestrians gather. Parting the sea, the ambulance crew appear, searching for direction. When I first visited the building, Roger stopped near the spot, on the sidewalk, slid his hand across my shoulder, a gesture both thrilling and unsettling in a public space, and pointed to the windows along the night floor. We'll live up there forever, darling, he said, leaning in, his voice soft, conspiratorial. We'll throw parties. We'll sit martinis and watch DC blink to life in the evenings, just you and me. I cracked those windows at his request this morning to let in the mellow spring air. Now a ribbon of black smoke seeps from those raised sashes, and I'm sure I spot a flame flicker behind the glass. A line of poetry surfaces, his eyes darkened by too great a light. It's from Ovid, I think, a god riding a chariot too close to the sun, blinded by its rays. Perhaps that's it, Roger and I have flown too close and got burned, are burning. Philippa is standing beside me, her hand gently touching the back of my arm, an awkward but tender attempt to console me. Judy, not the consoling type, stands a few feet from me. Her arms crossed, her chin up, her dark eyes like twin camera lenses recording it all. Maybe Judy or Philippa mentioned Ovid. They tend to go on about cultural tidbits. Gloria Graham is just glorious in the big heat. Or hand over Kinsey's new book. I can't wait to read what he has to say about women. Or maybe the poet's words echo from my grade school days, something I was made to memorize but forgot, something buried deep, dislodged as I watched my life turn to ash. I should be screaming. I should be crying. Maybe it's shock. How did this happen? Was it my fault? Did I forget to turn off the stove? Did Roger fail to unplug the toaster? He can be so forgetful. What about the bathroom heater? The towels dangle too close to it. I've noted it before. Maybe it wasn't our fault, but carelessness from another of the building's residents. A janitor ashing his cigarette in the oily bucket, or a housewife neglecting her curling iron. 
or maybe it's a defect of the fuse box on mouse-eaten wiring or spark from colliding elevator cables. It's a chilly evening, but I'm sweating, drenched. Roger isn't inside, of course. Sure, he said he would be home this afternoon, but he would have stopped the fire if he were inside. He would have used his strong runner's legs, dashed into the hall, yanked the extinguisher from the wall, and choked the flames with sodium bicarbonate. His naval training during the war and his ability to stay cool under pressure would have served him well. No, he's not there. There's no way. Maybe he's out securing work. We need him to find a new job. A damn good job. Or maybe he ran to the store for dinner fixings. Just in case, as a cosmic barter, I lean into the horror. Take my things, I say to God, to the universe, but just don't take Roger. In my mind, I fly up nine stories and turn back time an hour. I'm standing in the middle of the room recreated by knocking down the non-load-bearing wall between the dining and main living areas. It's spacious, contemporary, and furnished with low-slung Herman Miller pieces and rosewood, upholstered in fabrics with bold geometric patterns. Against the back wall, my gift to Roger last Christmas, a record player cabinet filled with Sinatra, Miller, Cole, Gillespie, Davis, and Peggy Lee, and beside it, a brass bar cart stocked with gin, martini glasses with delicate stems, and a big glass shaker that weighs a ton. We papered the far wall in a bold poppy print, modern and a tad garish, absolutely a statement. It's there amid the poppies that I imagine the first flame emerging, as if the bright red-orange petals, inspired by their color, transmute into fire. The thick paper bubbles and hisses and begins to peel off. Strips float to the floor, igniting the thin layer of linseed oil polish and sending a ripple of bluish fire across the wood. The glass on the starburst clock, now circled with flame, cracks and pops out. The hand stops, 7.24. In the blast of heat, the upright piano makes a strange sound, like ghostly fingers swiping its strings. The photos Roger displayed on its top waver and topple over. They are black and whites of his dead grandparents, his mild mother, Hard Bishop's father, his grim aunt and uncle, and his myopic sister, Rose Ellen, and him looking handsome in his lieutenant's uniform, and the two of us on a hike in Shenandoah National Park, pressing close, laughing, soon to be tugging at each other's clothes behind a boulder, giggling like damn idiots, aroused and happy, so happy. When the photo of us crashes into the floor, my heart lurches. Having gathered immense and uncontrollable energy, my imaginary blaze suddenly roars at me, bringing me back. Roger and I are good at imagining the worst. It's an occupational hazard. I remember a scene in our third Ray Kane novel, Seeing Red. McKee paused at the door, heat radiating out, inky smoke blooming from its keyhole, its doorknob a branding iron. What was inside was more than some maniac arson's delight, but a demonic force, sentient and vicious, poised to consume. Had Roger written that passage, or had I? I couldn't remember. Then I smell it, the actual fire. It's a greasy odor, like an old furnace, and then something sulfurous and nauseating, the scent of death, burning hair. How could I smell it so far away? Am I inventing it? Oh, God. The wall of numbness cracks and pain floods in. It's a sharp physical pain that knocks the breath out of me. My knees wobble and I lean into Philippa, who, at a svelte 22, is 50 pounds lighter than me. She catches me 
her grip assured as if she were bracing for this, my collapse and steadies me. She steps close, gazing at me, her eyes concerned and quiet, even a little cold. As the tremor dissipates, tears well up, and I sob. Somehow, I know that Roger is dead. Fantastic. You know, when you when you read um, from your story out loud like that, um, do you get a different perspective? Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because you do, you are sort of speaking through a character's perspective the actual sort of language and it's not necessarily your own. I mean, of course you wrote it, but it's, you know, you're living in a different perspective. So it's kind of weird, almost actorally, I guess, like I'm being an actor, <laughs> um, although I'm not an actor <laughs> at all. Well, fantastic.